Thank you, Imelda. Well, uh, your jokes are truly terrible. Thank you for sending them through. Uh, Caitlin has asked us not to share them. That shan't be happening, Caitlin. Thank you for uh, asking us, though. Um, I noticed, though, that you did get involved, uh, nonetheless. Uh, Paul says, my dad says I don't like stairs because they're always up to something. Uh, we should have left Ali on the drums here for a bit of boomtish, but that's not going to happen. What do you call a sheep driving a car in a swimsuit? A Lamborghini. Oh, very good, Rod. Excellent. Uh, why did the fat man want to go back to the moon? He wanted more space in his pants. Very good, Rod. Very good. My dad always says, Mim uh, has said, my dad always says, the kids got their brains and good looks from their mum. Uh, they must have because I still have mine. Oh, very good. These are really, really poor. Uh, what smells, what's blue and smells like red paint? Blue paint. Thanks, Daphne. Very good. Why ask a scarecrow advice? Pete says, because he is outstanding in his field. Very good. Uh, there's so many coming through. Thank you for sharing them. I hope they give you a bit of a, a laugh today. Why do you never see an uh, elephant hiding in the trees? Because they're so good at it. Oh, very good day. Very good. Very good. Uh, it is a great day to be able to share some of those moments, isn't it? The Father's Day uh, uh, jokes, the dad jokes that you might be able to share, even if we're at some sort of distance today uh, with those that we love. On this Father's Day, it does remind me of memories of my own dad as I was a child, uh, because my dad was and is uh, still a tall man like me. That's where I get my tallness from. And as a young child, I remember those memories of, of looking up to my dad uh, in every possible way, uh, looking up to him as the big gentle giant that he is and that I hope that I am in the same way that, that he continues to be today. Now, I don't look up to him anymore. We, uh, we're eye to eye now uh, as, we, uh, as we look at each other. Uh, but I still look up to my dad uh, and I'm sure that you might be in a similar Boat. And when I was a child, I particularly looked up to him and, and it was hard for me to understand everything about him. He was so big, he seemed to have so much time on his hands, he seemed to be able to do so many things with life and uh, with the organisation of life. He uh, worked multiple jobs and got us ahead as a family and all sorts of amazing things. And as a young child, it's hard to comprehend how someone so big, so much older than you, so much different to you could do all of these things. And this morning we come to a similar topic. We come this morning to consider not the bigness of our human fathers, but the bigness of God. And by definition, we need to come, therefore, as children, ready to recognise our place before God. Him as the, the big eternal God, as we'll see this morning, and us as children looking on and looking up towards our God. This morning, we come to look at theology. Now, you might have a lot of questions. We're going to go into some big territory this morning, and you might want a pen or a pencil to write down some passages, write down some questions. I'm going to give you some thinking time as well throughout the sermon today. It's, uh, it's a challenging one, but it's super encouraging, and I hope you're encouraged as we dive into theology proper this morning as well. So let me pray, uh, and then we'll dive aboard. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, please, that you'd help us just now. Uh, to understand who you are in your character, in your nature, in your attributes, and that we might learn uh, something new for us today so that we might uh, uh, love you more deeply and worship you more strongly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, don't forget to jump onto slido.com and using the hashtag HBSP to ask some questions this morning. 
Talking about God should be a daunting experience for us. It should be an awe-inspiring experience for us. Thinking and talking about the God of the universe should be a daunting and awe-inspiring experience for us. We call this experience theology, as we saw last week. Theology is the overarching name that we give to all of the ologies, but today we focus in on what might be described as theology proper, the study of theos, the study of God. Last week we saw that God had revealed himself to the world in his word. Today, we could do all sorts of philosophical arguments. They find their place uh, rightly in apologetics as we defend the faith, as we try to prove the existence and nature of God. There might be a place for that, but we're not doing that today because we believe, as we saw last week, that the God of the universe has definitively spoken to us. And he's told us what he's like. So let's just jump straight aboard and see what our God is like who is he what is he like in his character well right at the core of who he is we see our God is a living and loving God a living and loving God first of all living God we meet God as the living God the one true and living God of the Bible another way of saying this is he is the only God There might be nations around with other gods and deities, but according to the scriptures, there is only one true and living God. There are innumerable number of passages we could go to to make this point, but let me show you just two. Firstly, from Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, talking about the other gods of the nations, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, and the psalm could go on. And we see this in Jeremiah 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who, you, who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens." Our God is the one true and living God. And he is not like us. There is not a time in history when God was made. We, of course, were made in a time and space in history. But God was not made alive at some time in history like we were. He has been the living God from eternity past. Again, let me show you just a couple of passages to make this clear, starting at Revelation chapter 1. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, says the Lord God, who is and who was in the past and who is to come, the Almighty. And then in 1 Timothy 1.17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's true. And this passage from Deuteronomy 33, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So God is not like us. He is eternal. He is the living God from eternity past and will be the living God for eternity into the future. He is entirely not like us. And 
From eternity past to eternity in the future, God has existed as spirit. Look at John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is our God. He is the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but at this point, we're already in territory that is too big for our minds to comprehend, aren't we? Too big. After all, every single thing we have ever experienced in our whole entire life and everything we will experience for the future of our life has a start and finish mark. Whether it's this highlighter pen that I've got in front of me, it's got a start point and an end point. Whether it's this beautiful leather case for my Bible, this will last a long time because it was made by Aaron Johnson. Thank you, Aaron. But it's got a start time and it's got a finish time. Or the house that you live in. You, all of the work we put into our homes, they still have a start and a finish time. When we go on our bushwalks during this COVID period, they have, the trees that we see have a start and a finish time. Even our lives start and finish time. The earth itself has a start and a finish time. Every single thing we know starts and finishes, but with God, this is not true. And by definition, that therefore makes God beyond our understanding. Because we've never been able to know anyone or anything that has no start and no finish, that is eternal from start to finish. God is beyond our understanding. And that's actually a good thing for us. The great reformer John Calvin once described human beings as like a a glass that water is to go in. And God is like an infinite supply of water to try and put inside that cup. You cannot fit an infinite supply of water in a normal cup from your kitchen. And so it is with our minds. It's impossible for us to fit the infinite God into our minds. We can't hold all of the information about who he is into our minds. Now, thankfully, this does not mean that it is not possible to know God. We can still know God, but we cannot master the knowledge of God. God is the living God, the eternal God, who has existed as spirit from eternity past and to eternity in the future, and that he is the living God is good for us because it means that we do not follow dead idols like the nations around. We do not follow gods that are derived from the creation around, that have a start and a finish. But we believe and follow in the God who was and is and is to come. And this means for us, if we follow the living God, that we should give no allegiance to anyone or anything else. Because only God has the right credentials for us to worship him. I remember for a short time I had a job in a factory. It wasn't very long. It was a very short job. And as I was picking and packing things and putting them out for, uh, for order... Uh, One of the people in the warehouse was allowed to drive the forklift and that person wasn't me. I didn't have the right credentials and so I wasn't allowed to drive the forklift. You have to have the credentials for the job. And you might know this in your own workplace in various different ways. If you don't have the credentials, you don't do the job. 
or the credentials needed for the worship of humanity is that God be the living, ever-living, eternal, worthy of worship God that we see in his word. No one else and nothing else has the credentials that allow us to worship like the ever-living, eternal, spiritual God that we see in the pages of Scripture. He is the living God. But not only is he the living God, he is also the loving God. Now, of course, this is one of the most well-known things about our God, that he is the loving God. Now, a number of passages make this clear to us. Again, we could have found thousands of passages to make this point, but just look at a couple. Firstly, Numbers chapter 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And then the classic passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then in 1 John chapter 4, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Our God is a God of love. Of course, that love, as we've seen in these three passages, is his steadfast love, his strong love, particularly shown in the person of Jesus Christ, who was given to die on a cross to give us forgiveness and new life in him. This is our God, the God of love. And the fact that God loves us shows us, doesn't it, that he is a personal God. He is not off at a distance, aloof as some deity in the background. Now, we already saw last week that God has stooped low to speak to us and then to come and save us in the person of Jesus. As I mentioned, my dad is a tall man, a strong man. When I was little, he would have to get down and talk to me, just as I have to get down and talk to my kids when they were little as well. And John Calvin, again, the great reformer, spoke of God coming down to speak to us. Look at the way he puts it in this great quote here uh, from uh, a great book from R.C. Sproul. Calvin said that God, in his graciousness and mercy, condescends to lisp for our benefit. In other words, he addresses us on our terms and in our language, just as a parent might coo when talking to an infant. We call it baby talk. Nevertheless, something meaningful and intelligible is communicated. Our God is a personal God, a personal God who loves us by speaking to us, by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross for us. He is the loving God. But here's an interesting question. If God is love, not just has the characteristics of love, but is love, has he always from eternity past been love? In other words, was he love before he created us, someone to love? This is an important question for us. Was God just the living God in eternity past or was he also the loving God in eternity past? And the answer is, he was also the loving God in eternity past. How could this possibly be? After all, there is no one to love in eternity past. He had not yet created us. But God was loving in eternity past. Why? Because he is in an eternal relationship in himself that we ourselves call the Trinity. 
Yep, we're going to talk about that right now. Take a deep breath. Here we go. God exists in Trinity. Back in the Old Testament, we saw very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The famous statement in the law of God says that God is one. We affirm this. God is one. And yet, he is also revealed throughout the scriptures in three persons. Look at just a number of passages here to make this point. There's a, there's a bunch here. Note them down. Go back to them and have a look. The first one in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Look at this just for a moment. God created, the Spirit is hovering, and God said, the Word of God is present. There we have, in the very first three verses of the Bible, the three mentioned. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John echoes this in his Gospel in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word that spoke. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, as we saw in Genesis 1 verse 3. And without him was not anything made that was made. We go on and see how Jesus is treated after his resurrection by Thomas himself. Thomas, the great doubter, was told by Jesus, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Look at how Thomas responds. He responds to Jesus the person standing before him, my Lord and my God. Of course, then there's a the classic passage of Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or the great sign-off of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then finally, Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now we could look at a range of other passages in regard to this. But what this shows us is that our God is triune, a triune God. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, if your mind at this point is exploding, that's okay. You need to know that's a good thing for us at this point. If our God is not bigger than our minds, he is not worth our worship. If our God can be brought into control by our own minds, we should be worshipping our own minds rather than God. That he explodes our mind is a good thing for us. Now, of course, much more could be said about the nature of the Trinity, how the Trinity operates, and lots of books have been written on this, and I'd encourage you to get a copy of Know the Truth and read some of the pages that are in there. But I want to note just a couple of things about our loving Trinitarian God. First of all, we need to note that we are at the limits of our language when we start to talk about God like this. See, what we want to do is we want to know exactly how that works. We want to get inside that Trinitarian relationship and work out exactly how all of that happens. And there's some good, uh, there's some good thought to that. 
But there will always remain, in some sense, a mystery as to how this works. My son's been doing the HSC trial exams recently. Mathematics is one of his subjects. And I know he'd get a bad result for three equals one. It's bad maths, but it's good theology. We are at the limits of our language when it comes to this. Secondly, though we are at the limits of our language, our language when it comes to talking about God in this way is actually super important. We need to be very careful as we talk about the nature of who God is. That he is one God expressed in three persons, not to overemphasize the one or overemphasize the three, lest we fall into all sorts of different heresies in all sorts of different ways. It's important we talk about this uh, in the right way. One God, three persons. Which brings us to some of the problems Some of the heresies that have gone around in history past and appear today in the world around us with regards to the Trinity. Indeed, a denial of the Trinity is a denial of the Christian faith. If you deny the Trinity, you are not a Christian person. Now, that's not to say you need to understand it perfectly to be a Christian, but the denial of the Trinity is to make you in a camp that is not Christian. Let me share with you just three of the major uh, heresies that go around with regards to the Trinity. The first is called modalism. It's the description of where God might appear in three different modes throughout history. Let me give you an example with my homemade masks here. It's as if God wears a mask and early in the Bible he appears as the Father. And he puts on that mask as the father. And then later on in the uh, New Testament part of the Bible, he puts on the mask of the son and for a time appears as the son in the world. And then once the son returns back to heaven, then uh, he then sends the spirit wearing a different mask. There's really only one God, but expressed in three separate modes. That's what modalism will say. This is a heresy and not to be believed. After all, we've already seen in just a couple of passages that there are a number of times in the Bible where all three, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, are involved together in activity at the same time. And so the mask simply won't work with those passages. Think of times when Jesus was on the earth praying to his Father. If modalism is true, who is he praying to? No, this is a heresy that must be denied. The second is called Arianism. It's named after a man in 300 AD called Arius. And this view says that Jesus was not eternal, that he was the first created being. And that though God is one now, the Father created the Son and created the Holy Spirit as the first created beings of the world. But the problems with this view is that If this is true, God cannot be love from eternity past, for he is not in an eternal relationship with anyone. That's not possible. Likewise, it means that Jesus is not fully God, and so he can't properly represent us and represent God, more to the point, at the cross. And so the cross ends up meaning nothing. This view, Arianism, is still a very popular view today. 
It's popularised by the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe in this truth. They might not call it that, but that is what they believe. That Jesus was the first created being. But it's a heresy and it has been since the early church. Thirdly, tritheism. Just like a tricycle, tritheism is saying there are three gods completely independent of one another. And when Jesus comes, he is not of the same essence as the Father. And because of that, he cannot represent the Father to, uh, on this earth to us. Therefore, salvation means nothing. Again, this is a common view and a version of this is believed by the Mormon church in our world today. Now you might say, this is all very complex. And what we want to do is we want to rightly simplify things, don't we? When we come to these things, we want to simplify them so they're easy to understand. And what people have done in years gone by is they've gone, I know, we'll find some analogies about the Trinity to put out there. You might have heard of them before. Like water, H2O, that appears as steam and as liquid and as ice. Or the egg that is shell and white and yolk. They're all part of the one thing, but they're three. And unfortunately, as much as we like to try, these analogies are just analogies for one of the heresies we've just seen. Modalism. That there are three different modes to God. The problem is there is no analogy that fits. And I want to encourage you not to use any of them. Because there's nothing in our world, nothing in our language, nothing in our situation that we can find that helps us to understand this God better. Now on your screen, you'll see not an analogy, but a diagram. Again, this has got some limits to it, but this is going to help us a little bit to understand something of what the Bible teaches with regards to who God is. You'll notice on each of the three points of the triangle, there's Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And each of them are fully and equally at the same time, God. The Father is God, the Son is God and the Spirit is God. And they all glorify each other as the outside of the circle says. But though they are all equally God, all at the same time, at the same time, the Son is not the same as the Father. The Father is not the same as the Spirit and the Spirit is not the same as the Son. They are different, though they are all fully God. And the Father and the Son are in one another and the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit and the Son and so on. That may not even help at all. That may be more complicated than what, uh, what uh, we've already described. But it begins to tell us the story of what God is like in himself. And it tells us that God exists and in, a, in an eternal relationship. And that is why God is love. God was love before he even created us. Because he is in Trinity. In perfect, united relationship with himself in the Godhead. Now, why does all of this matter? Why would we bother even talking about this stuff? We said last week, didn't we? Sometimes people just say, I just love Jesus, that's all that matters. Well, that's a great sentiment. But as we know, the more we understand of another person, the more we're in a position to love them. And the more we know of our God, the more we're in a position to know him and love him. We know that this matters because God did not need to create us. He was already eternally love and he did not need to create us to somehow fulfill and fill his own tank up, as it were. 
And yet he did. And not only did God create us, but he chose to share the love that he has had within himself from eternity with us. That is an absolutely amazing statement. God chose to share his eternal love with us, his sinful human creation. And then finally, it reminds us that when God makes us in his own image, and we'll talk more about this next week, he created us for relationship. Relationship with one another and relationship with him. This is who we are to be made in his image is to be made as relational people as our God is a living and loving relational being himself. Trinity in unity. Now, as I mentioned, there's way more that could be said about all of this. And it's good for us to stretch our minds on understanding who our God is. But I recognize it's tough for us. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you some breathing time. We've just been on a long run. We're a bit puffed out. You might like to gather your thoughts before we move on to the second part of our talk this morning. And so uh, I'm going to give you maybe just 30 seconds to reflect. And now is the time to ask a question on slido.com. And I'll give you another chance later as well. But here's a time to reflect. Okay, well, I hope you've caught your breath. Let's continue to look together at our God. Having seen that God is a living and loving God, we now move to look at his attributes. Now, for us, our human attributes are just a mixture of various qualities we have uh, that we may have or may not have. But for God, he is his attributes because he keeps them perfectly. And as we look at them, we're going to look at them under two categories. Again, big words, but don't worry, you'll know what they mean. The incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. Or in other words, the ones he doesn't share and the ones he does share. We all know what communicable means, don't we? How often have we heard it in our current two-year season? The communicable disease of COVID-19 means it can be shared from one to another. We don't want to share it from one to another, but it can be, and it is readily shared from one to another. Likewise, the attributes of God are those that cannot be shared, incommunicable, and those that can be shared, the communicable. So quickly, let's have a look at some of these together, starting with those that can't be shared, the incommunicable attributes of God. First of all, God is omnipresent. He is all present everywhere. Again, we could show lots of verses. Let me show you just one of these from Psalm 33. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. God is everywhere, all the time, omnipresent. Secondly, God is omnipotent, omnipotent. That means he is all powerful there is nothing outside of his power Uh, job 42 makes this point very clearly the the next one maybe 
No, that's all right. Job 42 verse 2, I'll leave you to note it for later. Uh, That makes the, the point really clearly. Not a plan can be thwarted. There it is. I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Thirdly, God is omniscient, omniscient. He's omniscient, all knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know. 1 John chapter 3 verse 20 makes this point. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Of course, we could also have gone to Matthew 10 where uh, uh, Jesus says that God knows the numbers of hairs on our head, even me. There you go. Omniscient. Uh, fourthly, God is immutable. It's another big word means that he does not change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, uh, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, there's all sorts of other things we could say. God is perfect and sovereign and so on and so forth. And these are big words, yes, but these things tell us about the nature of our God. Just recently, we've seen, haven't we, in the Olympic Games, that those who can do what we are not able to do to the degree that we are able to do them are given glory by us and by our nation. We give glory to those at concerts who can do what we can't do. We give glory to those who are in positions of power. Glory because they do what we cannot do. And we should give glory to God for there are things in his attributes that we simply cannot do. God is the definition of these attributes and he completes them perfectly. So we should give glory to him. Secondly, we should be aware of the human desire to have these attributes. And we should recognise that the human desire to have these attributes is both sinfulness and folly. It's sinfulness because we cannot have these attributes of God. It is impossible for us to be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, immutable, sovereign and all of these other things. But it's also folly. Our world has been slowly building a system to tell us the lie that we are able to be omnipresent and omniscient. Our world is a world based on knowledge. Knowledge is everywhere. You can get any piece of knowledge from anywhere around the world that you wish at the, at the tip of your fingers. Knowledge is available. And as we said just a couple of weeks ago in our church service together, that during this time of lockdown, we have so much information on hand, particularly about the virus itself, that it is causing some of us to be overwhelmed with the knowledge that we are able to have. See, no human being was made to be able to be omniscient. And though we have more and more and more information, this is resulting in more and more and more people being overwhelmed because only God is able to be omniscient. We are not. We've not been made for it. Likewise, omnipresence. It's not the case at the moment, but when we are back to normal, our busyness is one of the things we pride about ourselves. I'm so busy, I've got so many things on and I'm so overwhelmed and I'm always tired and these are the things people say over and over again but only God can be omnipresent and get his to-do list done every day. These attributes belong only to God. Secondly, his communicable attributes. There could be a long list here. Love and justice and creativity and mercy and grace and God possesses all of these things perfectly. And we do not. 
we're only an echo of these things. But thankfully, as saved people, we are able to grow in these things to be more like God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And therefore, as Ephesians 5 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to observe our God, see him in all of his power, and to recognize that while we will never achieve the perfection that he has in these attributes, we are to imitate him. This is our very, very big God. And I hope this morning we've come just a small way to expanding our vision of who God is, expanding our vocabulary about how we can speak about him. So what does it mean for us to know him? Well, as we finish, just a couple of reflections on what it means to know him. First of all, that we are children of God. It is an immense privilege when you stop and think about it. That the very, 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 very big eternal living and loving God would make us his children in Christ. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in 1 John chapter 3 verse 1, we see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Because of Jesus, we're allowed into the household of God as his children. Not as his robots or his soldiers or his slaves, but his children. And this must be understood as a great privilege that the very big eternal God would make us his children. Secondly, we should reflect on the fact that there is a great privilege for us as God's children to be able to talk to our God. In the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father, we are able to pray. 1 John chapter uh, uh, chapter 5 says that we are to have confidence towards him. Confidence knowing that he hears whatever we ask. We'll talk more about exactly what these verses mean in our prayer seminar in a few weeks' time. But consider this, the very, very, very big God wants you to talk to him in a confident way. Thirdly, our God provides. Another way of saying this is God is for us. This is what providence means. Matt read for us earlier from Romans chapter 8. I'd love to read the whole section. We don't have time this morning, but look at the highlighted sections on your screen in Romans chapter 8 pointing to the providence of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And on the next slide, we see if God is for us, who can be against us? And finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? God is providentially working for us in Christ. And we see it in the creation around us and in our redemption and in our every breath, our every meal, our every step, our every heartbeat. And even if we can't see it, God is working for our good. And this is why, for us, worry is a sin. Because when we worry about tomorrow or our family or our friends or our future, it is a denial that God is providentially at work for us. Fourthly, the very, very, very big God has a plan. A plan for this world and a plan for his glory. A plan set in the ages past. Again, we could read the whole section, but look at the highlighted section here in Ephesians chapter 1. He's made known to us 
the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plan that the very, very, very big God has is set in Christ and includes us. It's not a plan for us that includes Christ. We must get that around the right way. Though God does in his sovereignty have an individual plan for our life, it is not for us to find that plan. Instead, it is for us to be caught up into the plan that God has in Christ and to work in with how he has set up the world. And then finally, God's glory and grace. God doesn't need us, but he made us and he loved us and he redeemed us and he provides for us. Why? For his glory. We're here for God's glory, the very, very, very big God's glory. This is not an ego move from God, for it would only be an ego move and a lack of humility if it were not true. But God is perfect, living and loving in every way, and therefore he has nothing to be humble about. And so let me finish with this quote from the book that I recommended earlier from Bruce Milne. Look at what he says. It is also resisted by some who argue that a self-sufficient God whose action is directed towards his own glory, is, the unwor- is unworthy of worship. This forgets, however, that the God of glory is the God of grace. Thus, while God's purposes certainly aim at and procure his glory, they aim also at our eternal well-being. The underlying principle is expressed by Calvin. It is, it is for God above all things, that are born in, uh, all things that are born and not for ourselves. Whether we agree with this dividing line and touchstone for all human thought, about God. That's the important point. Who is God? The living and loving God with these attributes and that we can be his children. Well, I hope that your mind has been expanded this morning. I want to give you a couple of moments just to think and to pray and to maybe ask a question. And I'm going to come back in a bit less time, about 60 seconds or so, and answer a few of those questions for us. Well, thank you for your questions. I've got a couple rolling through. Uh, The first is this one. If worry is a sin, 
How can we reconcile those who experience extreme worry and anxiety despite knowing and trusting God's power and providence? Uh, it's a great question. And what this question does is it turns over a little bit into the medical world that I'm not uh, qualified to talk about. Uh, uh, worry and anxiety at a medical, uh, at a medical level are, are, are really entirely different things in, in some ways. Uh, and so uh, we need to take what God has given in the good things of the medical world and put those into practice in that regard. Having said all of that... Um, the spiritual act of trusting God is a discipline that we need to get into the habit of doing, uh, no matter whether we're...